Hello, welcome back to Resurrections in Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano. In this episode, we're going to continue on on our discussion of the different comic book ages. Part one came out two episodes ago. We talked about the Golden Age and also what came out before the Golden Age. And this episode, we are talking about the Silver and Bronze Ages. What we think were the beginnings and endings of those ages, what we think are the defining characteristics of those particular ages as well. And when I say we, I have guests. It is John M. Wilson, Brian Zeno, and W. Blaine Dowler. Now, like I mentioned the last time, this is a representing of recording that was already posted uh, last year on my now-defunct Pop Culture Palace Presents podcast. That's not really available to download anymore, so I wanted to put it here. Plus, I thought it was a really good conversation and want to get a little more ears on it, and this show definitely gets more downloads than that one ever did. I have done some little bit of re-editing on this one, so it works a little better. Plus, I did take care of some sound issues that, well, if you listen to the first episode, I put a little clip in of how it sounded originally. This is a lot better sounding. However, there is one slight problem. Some idiot, who shall remain nameless because I don't want to speak about myself, apparently forgot to hit mute a few times because they had a bit of a cold and were coughing. So, sorry about that. Doesn't happen too often, but... It is there a bit in the background, and that was really negligent of me. Alright, that's enough preamble. Let's play a promo first, and then get on with the show. Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Well, you, you you bring up Showcase Four, and that is for for <laughs> what? Um, that's uh, First Flash or Silver yeah. Flash? Yeah, that's uh, that's what I was going to say. I mean, that is very much a hello. Uh, Showcase 4 is very much an important uh, landmark because for me, what, what Showcase 4 and, and its, its companion piece for me is Showcase 22, which, uh, which is where we got uh, the first Hal Jordan Green Lantern. And what those both did for me, really, was the reason those are the, that's the one-two punch at the start of the Silver Age for me is – in the Golden Age, you did have superheroes, and I'm sorry to keep sounding like a broken record, and this is probably the last time I'm going to say this in this podcast, but they were very much just another flavor of pulp hero. The superheroes you got in the 40s were as likely to resemble the spirit or the shadow as they were to resemble uh, Superman. Now, when you get to the Flash, uh, the Gardner Fox Flash, and the uh, the the Hal Jordan Green Lantern, uh, which I think was also Gardner Fox, or was that 
John Broom, John Broom. Um, anyway, the point is, is that these two characters distilled the Superman, Batman, Captain America strain. They isolated that strain right out of everything that had come before and turned it into its own thing. Now we are going to pursue this thing for its own sake. We're going to talk about it. It is going to know what it is. It is going to be a little bit more self-aware and moving forward. And then you add in the third um, and final uh, column or linchpin, uh, which is uh, Fantastic Four number one and Stanley and Jack Kirby starting Marvel. And all of a sudden, there you go. Boom. Now we've got something completely different from what happened before going on. And for me, what that something very different is, is them separating out Superman, Batman, Captain America, Wonder Woman from all the other pulpy stuff that had come before in the golden age and strength concentrating it into its own strain of storytelling. And boom, that to me gets the silver age going on a rocket ship, uh, ironically enough. So John, you want to go with, um, you want to go with the silver age then? Okay. So coming out of the golden age, um, you know, you got the Superman TV show, keeping Superman alive. Of course, his comics are going, Comics Code comes down right around the time that they launched Jimmy Olsen. And around that time, Marvel tries to bring superheroes back. Uh, they're not Marvel yet. They, they, they're they a string of weird names, but most commonly known as Atlas. Uh, they try to bring their superheroes back, which lasts about six months. It's not successful. So whenever the people over at DC slash National decide to revive their old Flash character in a new, sleeker look and a more energetic, modern storytelling style, um, it's a bit of a gamble because superheroes are not that cool. And it's a one-shot. And it's a while. Like, it's a while before his second appearance. But certainly between 1956, when that happens... And over the next couple of years, you have a lot of things going on in storytelling. Um, in the Superman comics, you have a shift away from set pieces to show off powers. You, you start to bring in more imaginative storytelling involving science fiction. Um, Superman starts to have more of a connection with his home planet. In 1957, he meets Jor-El. There's stuff going on in the Superman world. Batman... I don't know if he started doing a lot more monster planets or this, or if he was already doing that by this point, but he's starting like visiting alien worlds and crazy stuff. And I actually hate that era of Batman with a passion. Um, here, here. But it is a new way of telling stories. And Superman has his family. Batman has his family with Batgirl and Batwoman and Robin wondering if he's going to lose the love of his life because he's going to run off and get married to Batgirl to Batwoman. So, um, <laughs> You know, things are going on there. Green Lantern gets revived, and they bring all the heroes together into a team again for the first time since, you know, the early 1950s with the launch of the Justice League of America. So National has successfully revived the superhero with a new emphasis of sciency or gimmicky or, you know, quirky, energetic stories. And then this other company comes along and also strikes a chord with readers with their heroes that have hangups 
the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. And they have some others who don't take off nearly as much at the beginning um, and certainly, you know, have their interesting aspects like Thor and Ant-Man. But early Thor and Ant-Man is not a huge selling point for me. But anyway, so all this stuff is going on. So while it's hard for you to pinpoint a, a specific start of the Silver Age, the revival of the superhero is the event that I see starting the Silver Age of comics. And I I don't like Showcase 4 because it's such like a tentative first step that isn't really surrounded by anything else Silver age Nothing else is going on in the comics industry whenever Showcase 4 comes out that makes me think Silver Age. Not for a while after that. Over the next couple of years, things start to build. So, But certainly by the time Fantastic Four 1 hits at the end of 61, five years later, by that time the Silver Age has fully formed. If I were to put a finger on the beginning of the Silver Age, let's do Adventure Comics 247 when the Legion get introduced. Oh. I like that one. Ooh, intriguing, John Wilson. Intriguing. Okay, uh, Blaine. Okay. In terms of for the Silver Age as a whole, yeah, it is when like the Comics Code Authority was there. A lot of that content was going on. I've been thinking about whether or not I would want to subdivide it because I came into this podcast just knowing we're going to talk about the different ages. I was thinking more of the standard, like golden, silver, bronze, modern. And now I'm humming and hawing about whether or not it's worth dividing the Silver Age into pre and post Fantastic Four number one. Mm. Right. You know, prior to Fantastic Four number one, like John said, we saw the the resurfacing of superheroes and they found a way to tell superheroes outside that World War II backdrop and found stories that would keep people engaged with these heroes to, to the hard sci-fi leanings in Flash and Green Lantern, thanks to Gardner Fox and John Broom. The publication technologies allowed much more detail in the art. At least that's the impression I've got. I don't know how much of that is just the general muddiness of trying to reproduce Golden Age comics now versus what they could do in, say, the average showcase presents for the the Flash and Green Lantern, or if it was just that Carmen Infantino and Murphy Anderson were just putting in that much more detail than their peers. But it certainly feels that way when I look back at it in retrospect. But prior to FF1, it still feels like they're being aimed explicitly at kids. And DC Comics still feel that way for quite a bit after FF number one. But FF number one is where it feels more like they're shifting back to content for all ages, but still appropriate for children. You know, still within the restrictions of the Comics Code Authority. So there are some stories they cannot go to. Right. They can use Blackbeard, who's that mythological figure in the Fantastic Four, but they couldn't use Dracula. Things like that. Not that I... I'm aware of any time that Stanley or Jack Kirby tried to use Dracula in there, but there was that shift. And the Fantastic Four, there's enough nuance and bickering and infighting in the team that I don't think you could successfully argue that you were aiming it at the five or six year olds. You know, Stanley openly says, no, their target was the college student, right? Looking more for the teens and tweens, you know, get them into college, yeah, the college era and that sort of thing, which they had clearly some success in it's documented. The question is how much of it is because of what they were trying and how much of it is new. But yeah, I think you could look at sort of the, the new storytelling that was coming out of Marvel 
because the heroes were allowed to be flawed rather than being these perfect characters again. And DC's eventual shift to offering a wider variety of characters just to stay competitive in the market, right? Instead of saying, no, this is what defines us, allowing themselves to be redefined to keep the company healthy. Yeah, I was actually thinking something very similar to what you were saying. I, w- I always use Suitcase 4, besides fact hearing it all the time. It does kind of make sense to me. Like, this is the kickoff of this new rise of superheroes and also you know, the new rise of the comic companies. I mean, sorry, the comic industry. But, yeah, I could definitely, I think an argument could definitely be made for, let's say, 1961 as the beginning of the Silver Age, because not only was that part of that whole revamp of superheroes and bringing that back to the industry, but I would say the creation of, I mean, I know the company existed already technically, but the creation of Marvel is definitely a significant event in the, in the comic ages, and that almost, I'm wondering about that now, if I want to consider that the beginning of the Silver Age, because that not only kicked off a company that obviously still exists, as opposed to, let's say, a lot of the Golden Age companies, which either went away or were just eaten up by DC, but like you said, that was I mean, in the Silver Age, we definitely had a lot more of not just kids reading books, but who said it before about people calling it the Golden Age because it was when they read it 20 years ago when they were kids and now they're adults? One of you said that. I'll take credit for that. Okay. So like John said with that, you had a lot more now. This is when you started getting people who were past the age of puberty reading comics for the most part on a regular basis. And definitely Marvel, of course, definitely helped kick gear towards that and definitely made DC up the game to start doing that eventually as well. So now I'm wondering, damn it, stop making me think. All right. Any other thoughts on the silver age? Um, yeah, I have one, which is another of the things that really makes the silver age, the silver age to me. And I think I sort of waved at it in my earlier speech, but, um, I really want to make sure that I get the, uh, the, the point across and, and, and you also, uh, this this pl- also plays into what you're talking about, Al, and that's riffing off of what Blaine said about 1961 being so very, very important. Another thing that happened in 1961 that really puts a, a, a sharp point on everything else I was saying is uh, Flash of Two Worlds came out in 1961. That was uh, the, the Flash number 123. And the reason it sort of illuminates everything else that I'm talking about that makes the Silver Age the Silver Age is because, like I said before, in the Golden Age, you had, like, the stories were much more generally, they were standalone. There wasn't a whole lot of running storylines. There wasn't a whole lot of awareness of the comic story as a medium unto itself. You get into the flash of two worlds, and you put that together with everything else, all of a sudden... Comics are not just uh, uh, pointing at a slightly older audience and not just letting superheroes back in. They're starting to talk uh, to and about themselves. They're starting to reference their own history. They're starting to build internal worlds, which you can't do unless you acknowledge on some level an awareness of other comic books and comic books as a tradition and and superhero comics specifically as their own thing so that sort of new self-awareness and willing to talk about itself like what you're doing is you're talking to the older reader the slightly older reader the college age reader the teenager who's been reading maybe since the golden age and you're telling them yeah you love comic books we love comic books let's all talk about how much we love comics in superhero comic form 
And that was a very new thing in the early 60s. And that, to me, is one of the defining characteristics of the Silver Age. As much as the Golden Age was learning the rules of comic book storytelling as a whole, the Silver Age was about learning to do that. So it's kind of like like the creation of the universes. Something like that. Something, yeah. Anyone else in the Silver Age? Anything else to say in the Silver Age? Just that I think it's it's important to know that it's not... The Silver Age is not just its start. The Silver Age is, you know, is a, is a time where superhero comics and superhero comic storytelling was coming into its own. Um, it took a few years for Marvel to really get their feet under them. They didn't even have full control of their publishing until something like 1968. Yeah, correct. And by, then by then, you're already starting to head for a different direction in publishing that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly, as I read through the Superman stories of the Silver Age, uh, when I got to like 1965 or so, a lot of the newness was starting to wear off. Supergirl is introduced in 1958. The Fortress of Solitude, Brainiac, all that stuff is introduced in 1958. And they're telling stories that are fun, they're dynamic, they're engaging, they're, they're whimsical, they're delightful for about half a decade. And then, like I said, around 1965 or so, it starts to feel a bit dull. Um, Marvel, I think, from 1961 to 1963, 4, 5, they were actually getting their feet under themselves. Their, their, their stable of heroes was slowly expanding during that time until they reached the maximum number of books they were allowed to put out with as many superheroes as they could reasonably justify doing. And then they were just you know, telling stories with these characters with continuing subplots, with the notion that, yes... I want to go to my corner store and get the next comic, not just because I want to read the next adventure of Spider-Man, because I also want to know, is he going to get that date with Betty Brandt or is Liz Allen going to finally turn his eye? You know, is, <laughs> is Thor nice. actually going to get um, Jane Foster into Asgard and be allowed to marry her? I don't know yet. So there's this, this notion of wanting to continue the story that Marvel was doing. And DC, DC for the most part, eschewed that kind of storytelling. Their, their romantic subplots felt more like a sitcom where it was sort of the same dynamic, the same kind of tension over and over again with, with, with a few small exceptions. But that's my impression from what I've read. But there was this idea that the superheroes were starting to become people to a more or less extent, especially at Marvel. Uh, not not to get too stompy or domineering, but just I want to riff off of two things that you just said, John. Um, one is it's interesting that you that you picked 1965. Um, you kept mentioning 1965 as like a sort of watershed moment for Marvel, because really um, the, you, you're absolutely right in that. Like you look at the Fantastic Four, the Fantastic Four, the Galactus trilogy happened, I think, in 19 late 1965. And that really was when the Fantastic Four became the Fantastic Four, like the Lee Kirby magnificence. And it was around that same time that Thor stopped being, 
you know, oh, here's a thunder god on Earth trying to stop communist bomb plots. And all of a sudden became, you know, Thor going back and forth to Asgard and dealing with gods and dealing with the the Bullfinch's mythology soap opera of divine egos and blah 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 And Kirby and, took him into space and all sorts of stuff. Exactly. And then in 1965 or 66 is when uh, Romita took over from Ditko as the artist on Spider-Man, and that launched a whole new era of strength for that one. So that's very, very... Uh, I agree with in the strongest possible terms, and it's it's very cool that you like named 65 really as the watershed moment for Marvel really becoming the Silver Age Titan that Marvel that we remember Marvel being. And the other thing, real quick, that you were talking about the differences between Marvel and DC and how they handled the human sides of their characters. It's most prevalent in those 1960s Silver Age stories, but I've always sort of felt it to be at least up through maybe the 70s or 80s, a certain defining difference between the two companies, at least, that Marvel's characters, Marvel superheroes were always the people in costume. Spider-Man was always Peter Parker in a costume, but Peter Parker was who he was. Um, same thing with say, Tony Stark and Iron Man or even T'Challa and the Black Panther, whoever you want to talk about that came about in the 60s. Whereas with DC, you always felt like Superman was who he was and Clark Kent was the costume. Batman was who he was. Bruce Wayne was the costume. You see what I'm saying? And that was always a key difference to me between the two companies. And it was most visible in that mid-60s Silver Age time period. I just want to point out 1965 is also when Wally Wood fixed Daredevil's costume. So yes. it looked like it was not designed by a blind guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Wood. <laughs> yeah, that's much, that was a much better costume. And it saved Alan the- Scott, however, still has the one that looks like it was made by a blind guy. Yes. Yeah. Well, and D Man, because, you know, he got Daredevil's leftovers. (laughs) D Man! I love D Man. Someone has to. Yes, that's me. I I took that bullet so the rest of y'all don't have to. Hey, that was one of the first Captain America books I ever read, was the first D Man. (laughs) Mm. And you're still here. I know. And you're still (laughs) Go figure. I've never read a single D Man comic. I'm just ripping on him because everyone does. The swamp, more than merely a place. It is a churning, seething, bubbling bed of life, of which you are a part. Once you were a man, a chemist named Ted Salas, until one little experiment went somewhat awry, and you changed. The serum that was to have made you a super soldier, combined with the strange forces in the swamp, to make you over into this, a shambling, mindless mockery of your former humanity. The macabre man-thing. Man-Thing was created in the early 1970s to capitalize on the growing monster craze, but under writer Steve Gerber it became something quite different. Experimental, surreal, and very, very weird. It was something I loved as a kid, but does it still hold up today, four decades after its initial publication? So join me, Paul Matthew Carr, as I attempt to make sense of this cult classic and analyze each issue, putting it in the context of the time it was written and comparing it to the standards of today. And maybe you, too, can come to love the world's second most famous swamp-based comic book character as much as I do. The nexus of all realities. 
a Man-Thing podcast, a twice-monthly dive into the bizarre. All right. Well, that's our Silver Age, so let's go, I think, so John, let's start with you. What's after the Silver Age? What comes next? Well, we, we consider our uh, periodic table of alchemical elements, and we go from silver to bronze. To me, the Bronze Age is a movement to recognize that these comics really are not just for kids. I mean, that was mentioned a bit with the Silver Age, and I agree. But um, you have a lot more of an awareness of the world coming into comics, especially over at DC, uh, a move towards what they now call, or even at the time, called relevance storytelling, bringing current social issues, really making comics super political in a way that Twitter would bitch about no end if it were alive back then. <laughs> um, wow. But bringing race and class and social economic status and all those things that tend to divide us as people and making them story points and showing people crossing those divides and reaching across the barriers and joining together as people. Lois Lane has her infamous <laughs> I am cur- I am curious black issue. Um, the Daily Planet gets his first black reporter with Dave Stevens. You have Green Lantern and Green Arrow and all that other stuff um, over at Marvel. You know, Marvel's Silver Age is, I'm sorry, Bronze Age move is a bit harder for me to pin down, but certainly the death of Gwen Stacy over at Spider-Man is kind of a, a major moment of emotional maturity, I guess, for that comic story. Anyway, so all these things are happening. Also, the Bronze Age introduces a lot of horror and monster elements. They start pushing that comics code a bit more, and I think the people working at the comics code start to care a bit less. But in any case... To me, this is the Bronze Age. When does it start? Gosh. Um, some starting points would be when the entire editing house over at Superman changed over, which is most um, visibly characterized by Superman 233, which has a big giant number one on the cover, even though it's not an issue number one. Has Superman burst into Kryptonite chains because he loses Kryptonite? And also, I think the launch of uh, or the first Swamp Thing story probably helps indicate a Bronze Age. So, yeah. So about like 71-ish, you're saying? Yeah, 71. End of 70 going into 71. Okay. Uh, Blaine? I was also going to go with 71 because, again, that is the shift where the Comics Code Authority starts to lose its ground. One of the major stories I would point to contributing to that coming from Spider-Man is not the death of Gwen Stacy, it's the three-issue arc that was requested of Stanley by the U.S. government yes. to show the problems with drugs. Because the Comics Code Authority said no drug use of any kind. Or Stanley said, the government just asked me to, to do a story that makes it clear that drugs are bad. So okay. it's a, very much an anti-drug story. And when he published Spider-Man issues 96 through 98 with Martin Goodman's permission, who's the actual publisher... But when he published those three in the anti-drug story with the Comics Code Authority stamp of approval removed and it didn't change the sales, that's when the Comics Code Authority, I think, had the wake-up call that said, okay, there either needs to be some give and take here or they're just going to walk away. 
because uh, clearly some of these titles can survive without us. That and just the happy accident of Mark Wolfman's name when they, he, they couldn't be. <laughs> I mean, DC wasn't putting credits in for writers. So when the writers were trying to fight for the same credits that Marvel had been doing since the Stan and Jack FF number one, you know, actually telling people who created this. With the, the formal credit box, one of Mar Wolfman's characters said, you know, yeah, this was uh, a, a whispering Wolfman told me this story. And they had to fight to have that in there. And they actually had to edit it to give him credit because they weren't allowed to have Wolfman in the dialogue because werewolves were not allowed. So actually had to have no written by Marv Wolfman. And they had to prove to the Comic Code Authority people that's not a pen name. This is his birth certificate name. <laughs> this is who he actually is. You can't block him. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's when it pushed back. So the Bronze Age, I'm in almost total agreement with John, aside from just which Spider-Man story has the most emphasis here. It's when they started telling the socially relevant stories. The, the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams run on Green Lantern where Green Arrow was in there as a secondary character and they were combined into one book. So you had your very right-wing Green Lantern and your left-wing Green Arrow and it wasn't it wasn't preachy but it was really looking at both sides of the issue. I would say more often than not Green Arrow won the debates because both creators happened to be left-wing but the cases made by both of them were clearly heard. And you could hear the pros and cons of both sides. When you hear, if you hear Neil Adams on Word Balloon, you'll hear that the storyline in that where Speedy, Green Arrow sidekick, has a drug abuse problem was actually pitched prior to the Spider-Man story being published, but was kiboshed by editorial because of the Comics Code Authority. And then when the Spider-Man story came out, Neil Adams went back and said, hey, look, they're doing it. They, They got away with it. DC was a little more aligned to the Comics Code Authority, so they had to give and take and negotiate with them to say, well, no, we need to do it. And that that redefinition of the Comics Code Authority came out in 1971 where they loosened it up to say, okay, you now can have stories about drug use if the drug use is clearly a bad thing. You now can have corrupt politicians if you make it crystal clear that they are the exception and not the rule. And things like that that allow for more realism in stories about people who could fly through the sky and shoot laser beams out of their eyes. But something where, you know, once you've been given the powers, you can write stories that are a better fit for how the world would react to them. And also, like John said, that loosening the Comic Code Authority allowed things like Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman and the classic monsters to come back, although zombies were still off the table. So, you know, Zuvembi's and the Avengers, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, to me, that's where it kicks off is that that first hard push where the Comics Code Authority redefined the rules so that the creators could tell stories that weren't just, you know, hey, how is Superman going to prevent Lois Lane from proving he and Clark Kent are the same person this month into, OK, how do we deal with racial discrimination when you've got John Stewart as your Green Lantern now and things like that. Brian. Well, 
Um, I really don't know how much I can add. I mean, I think both uh, John and Blaine got it pretty much exactly right. For the only thing I, I can add to what they said uh, regarding the, the increased social consciousness, that is very clearly part of the Bronze Age. But for me, and, and you st- stole my thunder a little there, uh, Blaine, because you, you, you were the first to get to uh, Adams and O'Neill and uh, Snowbirds Don't Fly and uh, all that. What I was going to uh, say is for me, as much as it is a, a social <laughs> trend, it's also a sort of a, a look and a feel. Um, to me, comics of the 70s look um, and feel significantly different from comics of the of the 60s and so for mm-hmm. me i'm actually going to put the start I, I mean not that i want to get too hung up on you know beginnings and endings per se but for me i'm i actually start the bronze age in my head in late 69 when denny o'neill and neil adams first hook up uh detective comics number 395 uh which was cover dated january 70 so we're gonna say it was probably out in the you know late fall of in the fall of 1969 and that to me means something very different now right yes i do but artistic (laughs) uh employment wise they hooked up but yeah um otherwise who knows i do not know what these these, this was the late 60s man anything went dude no but um my point is is that that i i've read that book actually uh paint a picture of peril and that's the first book i the earliest book i've read that looks and feels like a 1970s comic to me that is of a similar kind of piece to the mid-70s Len Wein, Ross Andrew, uh, Amazing Spider-Man stuff that I started to read as a child in the mid-70s, that were the first earliest comics that I ever read. Um, also, The Incredible Hulks that I was reading in a little later on in the 70s with the Sal Buscema art. Those, to me, are the touchstones, and those, to me, are the epitome of the Bronze Age. And so when I try and go back as far as I can and not have it be something that feels and looks different i would say to me it's very much o'neill and adams but i would say it's actually the earliest batman work and then of course when the social consciousness starts to creep in with the green arrow green lantern stuff and then you start uh uh, getting similar stuff happening in spider-man and uh then you and then you know as 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 john pointed out the death of gwen stacy you know oh my god you could actually kill a long running uh, a major character, a love interest, even by 1973 standards, that was hard core, right? As the comic book audience matured, the storytelling had to mature. A couple years back, a buddy of mine and I, we had a, uh, a Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos podcast. And sadly, it didn't last as long as I would have liked for uh, external reasons. But we we were about eight issues in when it suddenly dawned on us that in the early 60s, they were doing a war comic in the early 60s. And we're trying to figure out why are we so unhappy with the way these war comics are presented. And about seven, eight issues in, it dawned on us. It's because the dynamics of this group that we're being presented as the most crack commando team in the world, they're really in reality. When you look at it, they are a, a, a gang of teenage hooligans. They're like, you know, the reader and his buddies, you know, driving around town in a Jeep instead of a jalopy and, you know, getting into fistfights with Nazis instead of rival gangs. But still, still in all, this was just a teenage gang. 
And I think that was supposed to reflect the world of the readers to the readers at that point. Now we're 10 years later. The comic book audience is older. So the ways in which these stories deal with the outside world has to be more mature as well. And I I think that was uh, uh, that to me is everything about the Bronze Age summed up. I I think that we can't overemphasize the look of the Bronze Age as opposed to the Silver Age. Um, pick any character who exists in both camps, and there there are significant differences. Superboy got Bob Brown as a regular artist in I think late '68, and he, um, especially with some of his inkers, not with all of them, but with some of his inkers, really overhauled that book and turned it into. You know, instead of simple little square images, you have you know little square panels with cartoons inside. You have these sweeping images of Superboy. Um, when Ross Andrew got on Superman in 1968, he did the same thing. He he brought a dynamic to just the the layout of the page that broke the panel rule. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Neil Adams on covers is a huge indicator that something different is going on at DC. And it at Marvel, because he was doing X-Men work in the late 60s, too. Right, right. So just the look and feel, and some of it, not not all of it, I'm not sure if it's a majority of it, but some of it is just a larger use of ink. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that ink is no longer just a simple outline of your characters, but that ink is in shading, ink is in shadow, and bringing shadows and shading into your two-dimensional art to just give it some more substance and some more depth to it. I, I think just to sum that up, we cannot overemphasize the the importance of the look of comics as we go from the '60s to the '70s. Here, here. Uh, well, before I go on, Brian, I want to thank you because thanks to your comments about the commandos as like fighting them as like the Nazis like gangs, I have this image of the commandos and Nazis dancing around no man's land like the Jets and the Sharks, <laughs> yes. snapping their fingers at each other. When you're a jet, you're a jet All the way from your first cigarette To your last dying day And and now and now I'm hearing them saying Then you're SS, you're SS for life And it's just getting all going all downhill in my head from there Thank you, Al, for that Yeah, well, I blame you, so I had to throw it back <laughs> Yeah, no, I definitely agree The Bronze Age definitely has a different look And... It's funny, it's like we get to the ages more, it's like the ages become more crystallized because we're getting more agreed on of what makes these ages. It's uh, There's the weakening of the comics code leading to other things. Obviously, it's a social relevance and also a lot of soul-searching and, uh, as we called before on the other show, navel-gazing. So Adam Warlock, uh, Howard the Duck. But also, one thing that actually wasn't mentioned, but I so I actually get to say something new, is we also have a lot of creators coming in now who weren't just people who were, let's say, like Gardner Fox or people earlier who were writing pulp and they just kind of ended up writing these, or illustrators who happened to like, oh, this is a work I can do. We have a lot of now fans of comics going into comics because they like comics and they want to write and draw comics. So, you know, we have Inglehart and Magan and Conway and Jim Starlin, Claremont, Simonson, these people who got into comic books because that's what they wanted to do. They didn't just kind of fall into it or end up being there. Oh, Roy Thomas, the pioneer in that, I think. Well, yeah, he would be the pioneer, but he definitely is still, I mean, was definitely made more in the Silver Age still, but, like, this is, like, he was, like, the pioneer, but, yes, you're right, he is the pioneer of that, definitely, him and, like, let's say, Jim Shooter. Right, right, right. 
you have all these fans now going into comics because they want to write Spider-Man. We, we shouldn't mention, we should not leave Roy Thomas out because as a child, his deciding to subscribe to comic books is what helped end the Golden Age <laughs> because he was a big fan of the Justice Society of America. So he subscribes to All-Star Comics and the first issue he gets is, is issue 58, which is now titled All-Star Western. So, um, you know, Roy Thomas helped kill the Golden Age. <laughs> Damn you, Roy Thomas. <laughs> well, no, it, it needed to be euthanized at that point, I think. Probably. But he's also responsible for bringing it back into consciousness later on. So yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think it's a pass. And like anything else, these things, if there's no hard and fast date for any of these. If I had to give a date for the beginning of the Bronze Age, I would go about 1970. Because that's when you have a lot of things happening around then that I think are or starting then, are definitely what we call the Bronze Age. That's when you have the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series starting in 1970. Um, one of the things that started in the Bronze Age that you really had before was anti-heroes. You know, you got the Punisher mm-hmm. in the Bronze Age, you got Wolverine, and Conan number one starts in 1970. Oh. oh and yeah. don't forget Kirby leaving Marvel. That was my next And one. heading over to DC. Mm-hmm. That's a big one, too. Yep. So I have it down here. September 1970 is Fantastic Four 102, his last issue, and October 1970 is Jimmy Olsen, 133, his first issue. So for me, I go with 1970 more or less as the beginning of the Bronze Age because you have a lot of these things starting right then and there that year, it seems like. You know, I was talking earlier about how sometimes ages tend to die, just kind of like dwindle away, and then eventually something new happens and brings it back to life. Yeah, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, oh my God, was I ready for Kirby to get on that book. <laughs> I, the, I, was, I was just I was, I was reading through my Superman comics and just... <laughs> Every Jimmy Olsen is just like, okay, let's read this. Oh, wow, that was a time that I just had reading that comic. How many more issues until Kirby gets here? <laughs> Weren't they counting them down on the covers, like, you know, four months till Kirby <laughs> is here or something like I that? I don't know. And I like early Jimmy Olsen, you know, from the you know, late 50s, early 60s. Jimmy Olsen's fun stuff, but, but, but uh. anyways, yeah. sidetrack. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. (sighs) Okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world... Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU Cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. And here is our feedback. And last episode, if you remember, because I didn't have time to do the feedback, I promised double this time, and double you shall get. So first of all, feedback for episode 104, Infinity Countdown Part 6, 12 Mad Hatters. The post for that episode on Facebook was liked and shared by Tom Allen, Jason Venable, Joe Sedano, Gene Hendricks, J. David Weeder, Hal Jordan, Guntum Shioran, Jesse Starcher, Tim Browning, and GeekPod. Tom Allen also commented on the post, saying, Look forward to the podcast. By the way, I have created a Thanos discussion thread on Comic Vine. Feel free to mention it. 
which I am. So if anyone's interested in a Thanos discussion thread, I have put it on the show notes. On Twitter, the post about the episode was liked and retweeted by Into the Weird, EMP and EMX, Attila and Rising, Viet Huynh, Toys and Jokes, Limelink, Connor McKenna, Last Sons of Krypton, Ghost Rider Podcast, Nexus of All, Into the Night, Jeffrey Brown, I Am Your Target Demographic, Jason Snake Venable, Tim Price Podcrasher, The Hammer Strikes Random Geeky Stuff, Steve Sellers, Comics in the Golden Age, J. David Weeder, and Sentinel of Liberty Podcast. On Tumblr, the post was liked by GX-Vrains-5DS. Speaking of Tumblr, gotta thank a few more of the people who follow our Tumblr page. Thank you to FabFenix, Orson Risa, Pime8, Mooch Sing, and Shine an Awesome Light. Now, on to episode 105, Comic Book Ages Part 1. Facebook liked and shared by Joe Sedano, Michael Lane, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Mike Peacock, Hal Jordan, Jesse Starcher, and Gene Hendricks. On Twitter, liked and retweeted by EMP plus EMX, Into the Night, Connor McKenna, Last Sons of Krypton, Viet Huynh, Toys and Jokes, Attilan Rising, Ghost Rider Podcast, I Am Your Target Demographic, Boo, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, Tim Price, Podcrasher, Thanos, yes, Thanos, pretty cool, huh? Brian Z, and Let's Get Show Podcast. Once again, the Tumblr post was liked by GX-Vrains-5DS, and I think they've actually liked a few episode posts before this too. So, thank you. Appreciate it. And the Tumblr follows for this one. Go-your-own-way, Hammond DJ 168 Captain Marvel, that's Marvel with three A's, Steph-Art, and Tina Feed. Tina Fiend. Yes, that's it. Fiend. So if you want to hear your name mentioned here, well, all you have to do is like and or share when I post about the episode on one of these social media feeds. So, Facebook. Type in Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box. You'll find our page. On Twitter, we're at AdamThanosPod. Tumblr, resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. You can always leave an iTunes review. That's awesome. Or you can send us an email. Resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. Speaking of email, I still have some emails to read, including finishing off the one from Kati that me and Joe read a few episodes ago. What I've decided to do is that the last episode of the year, which I usually do as an outtake episode, this time is going to be an outtake slash email episode. So I'm going to read all my emails then. So if you want to get an email in, send it by, I don't know, December 1st. I don't know when I'm going to record, but it's definitely not going to be sooner than December 1st. So if you get it in by then, it will be read. I almost forgot. If you're looking for anywhere else you can hear me, go to the Fire and Water Network and look up the most recent episode of Cheerscast for Season 2, Episode 11, Just Three Friends. Ryan Daly was foolish enough to have me back on there. Links in the show notes. This show can now be found on Stitcher. In case you don't know what Stitcher is, Stitcher is Radio On Demand, a free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discovered from 20,000 others. Available on iOS, Android, Nook, and iPad. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the App Store. Okay, that's all for this time. 
Next episode, we're going to finish up this talk on the different ages of comics, talking about what comes after the Bronze Age, including when we think that starts. Until then, I would love to hear your thoughts on what we talked about this time, which is the Silver Age and the Bronze Age. Any thoughts you have on the Silver or Bronze Age? When you think they stop, start? What makes them those particular ages? Let us know. I already gave you the feedback information. So send an email, tell me on Twitter, Facebook post, whatever you want. All right, that's it. Bye. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended or happening or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peaceloveproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page.